This is The Guardian. Another week, another story about Suella Braverman. Questions over whether she broke the ministerial code. Again. I paid the fine and I accepted the points. At no time did I seek to avoid the sanction. But it looks like she's avoided an investigation. The same can't be said for Boris Johnson. More on that later. Meanwhile, one of the biggest political stories of the week is the expected rise in net migration figures. Yet another broken Brexit promise, something that Keir Starmer has been quick to jump on. The Prime Minister stood on three Tory manifestos, each one promised to reduce immigration, each promise broken. Some governments slide quietly towards defeat. Some, like this one, make a lot of noise as they disappear down the political U-bend. But what will deliver the final flush? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week, the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists Raphael Bear and Gabby Hinsliff. Hello. Hello. Hello, John. Um, speeding courses, speed awareness courses have been uh, very much in the news this week. Uh, it seems to me almost a universal experience these days. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not sure you're allowed to talk about these things according to the rules officially. I've been on three. That's a lot. Three, a lot, I've been John. One, one in person one and then two via Zoom. I really, I've done one and I really enjoyed it. I felt I learned a lot. I don't know if I, my driving changed as a result, but I had one really great insight from it, which is there's a moment where you, there's a graph that shows quite why driving at 30 miles an hour is much more dangerous, especially if you hit someone and more deadly than at 20 miles an hour because it's basically an exponential curve. And this argument ensued between someone doing the course and the expert explaining no, you must never was do it that. a man by any chance I'm just guessing <laughs> it was a man by by extraordinary coincidence it was just really intriguing watching someone say yes I know that you you feel intuitively that this this thing is true but I'm here to show you the evidence that actually something else is true and just going round and round in circles and I was watching that thinking this explains a lot of politics this conversation I did what I have to admit to my shame I did one just before lockdown and my main thought was like if, if, if I'm going to get COVID this is going to be a really rubbish way to do it but the thing that was most striking about it was that halfway through he said has anyone done one of these courses before and literally half the hands in the room went up and you just thought well that's, that's obviously work then <laughs> none of them were John amazingly but yeah I must say, um, by the time I got to the third one, my driving habits <laughs> did, they know you by name? did change. I'm quite sort of neurotic now about staying at 30 and also just bearing in mind some of the things they said, like the fact that on average, this is another bit of sort of statistical information they, they hit you with, that on average, if you try and go faster to an appointment or whatever, you, you save about 10 seconds or whatever. It doesn't work, in other words. You yeah, just, you generally go about as fast as the sort of aggregate movement of traffic is. You just have to go with the flow. But anyway, we've all done them, unlike the Home Secretary. We'll come on to that in a moment. We are recording this at lunchtime on Wednesday, and we're going to be talking about two things. Rishi Sunak's two big problems. To start with, Boris Johnson and Suella Braverman. And as we prepare to get the latest net migration figures on Thursday, we'll talk about why that figure is rising and the headache that may cause for the Tory party and the government. Let's talk, first of all, about Partygate coming roaring back in the form of yet more allegations about Boris Johnson's observance or not of lockdown rules. He has been referred to Thames Valley Police because his ministerial diary revealed visits by family and friends to Chequers, the Prime Minister's country retreat during the pandemic. The Cabinet Office says that officials had been obliged to disclose the documents to the police 
under civil service rules. Now, this story seems to be getting more complicated all the time. Um, as I said, we're recording this on Wednesday, and we've just heard that the official COVID inquiry has threatened the Cabinet Office with legal action over the Cabinet Office's refusal to share Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages and diaries from during the pandemic without heavy redactions. Now, leaving that aside, the very fact that this has become a story is quite surreal because the reason those Cabinet officials had access to Johnson's diaries and more, by the sound of it, is because he chose to use defence lawyers paid for out of public money for his dealings with the forthcoming COVID public inquiry. But as we are speaking, the story about Boris Johnson um, is sort of becoming ever more complicated. It's worth pointing out that right now, we are told, Boris Johnson is severing ties with the government-appointed lawyers representing him at the COVID inquiry after he was referred to police. He has lost confidence in the Cabinet Office, we are told, and he's going to appoint his own legal team. Oh, no, they'll be funded by the taxpayer, so you're not getting a school or hospital out of it. So I'm reading out there the words of Stephen Swinford from The Times. Gabby, tell me why that's significant. I've, I, I can't even make sense of it's it. It's not it unprecedented. Anymore. You know, in past legal inquiries, people have gone for their own legal representation. I can remember it in the Blair government when there was the inquiry into cash for honours, for example. But it does mean that if you've got different legal teams representing different ministers or different former ministers, different people represented at the inquiry, you know, suddenly you've got a lot of clashing interests competing. There's no longer that sense that government has an overall picture and that Rishi Sunak's government has an overall picture of what's coming forward to the inquiry. And you have got that sense of every man out for themselves, dump each other in it, which um, doesn't bode well for survivors of that government. More chaos then. Yeah, and I think also, I think it's Boris Johnson trying to make the point again, yet again, fueling this really dangerous idea, I think, that the, the civil service is out to get them and the cabinet office is out to get them and the whole system is stitching him up rather than taking responsibility for what he's actually done. Raf, this is perfect stuff, isn't it, for the eternally paranoid disciples of Boris Johnson, who would have you believe that the only reason he isn't prime minister anymore is because of plots and the famous blob and the idea there are sort of constant conspiracies against him. And here they would say is yet another one. Well, yeah, there, so there is the, the cult of Boris the Martyr, uh, which narrates the events of last year, essentially, that uh, Boris Johnson is the victim, or uh, number one victim of the whole uh, party gate business, uh, and that the declining conservative fortunes can be charted from the moment when the party essentially lost faith in his extraordinary magnetic election winning powers and obviously to narrate that uh, narrate events in that way you have to deny you have to be occupy a state of immense denial about actually all the things that he did wrong and all the facts that we know about which is that he did actually break the rules and there's lots of evidence to support that but what about what one bit of officialdom the official covid inquiry now threatening the cabinet office with legal action it's quite hard to follow this story isn't it i mean that's sort of one branch of government almost suing the other that's what it feels like or, or there is the, the fact that essentially there's there's one side saying you're not disclosing enough and we need to know more about what happened. And obviously the other side saying um, you're disclosing too much. Uh, this is none of your business. I mean, because it is so labyrinthine, you have to zoom out and think, well, what are the established facts that that, of, that no one really disputes, which is that Boris Johnson broke the rules and said things about it in public, in Parliament, in fact, that were flagrantly untrue and for all sorts of other reasons lost the confidence of m the country and most of the Conservative Party and ended up losing office. And the fact that now there, there are, there's a section of the Tory party that simply wants to pretend those are not facts and has a different account of what's going on in politics and is, is 
elaborating a sort of conspiracy theory to explain their predicament says more about a kind of, a, frankly, a sort of an intellectual pathology on the right of politics. Yeah, yeah. And we don't want to get, we don't need to get bogged down in the weeds of actually whether or not the diary should be handed over or how much of his WhatsApp messages should be redacted. The known facts tell enough of the story. Those people you just mentioned are all talking about a witch hunt. But there is, a, there is a sort of rational and sensible question we should ask here, Gabby, which is how much trouble we think Boris Johnson is in. Yeah, and I think the reason it's so sensitive now is because obviously we are probably a couple of weeks from the Privileges Committee reporting on whether or not Boris Johnson misled uh, Parliament. They were meant to publish their findings about whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament this week, but that's now been That's postponed. what I mean. It's a couple, We're probably, it was either going to be this week or next week. It's more like, I think more likely to be next week. So we are a couple of weeks away from that point so that you're at that point where they're resolving their findings and whether or not I mean it seems sort of most people's educated guess shall we say is that they are going to find he misled parliament and the question then is how long he might be suspended for and the time he's suspended for then triggers whether or not you know he's likely to face a recall petition and potentially you know a threat to him holding a seat and remaining an MP. We knew that. We did know that. But what does the involvement as it seems of the Thames Valley Police uh, do to the story? I would say that you know the the reason there's been such a fuss about it from the Boris Johnson right is you know the the outcome of a police inquiry you know at most you suspect it would be another fixed penalty to add to his collection of, of fixed penalties party gate. The feeling I think among Boris Johnson's supporters would be this is going to make the committee whether or not that's true who can say but this is going to make the committee feel that it has to throw the book at him you know last thing you want just as the committee's deciding on your fate is yet another reminder um that you were guilty as charged really now raf i think i'm right in saying that you invented the term long johnson this uh this term for the shadow he still casts over the government and the conservative party and the chaos he left in its wake right i mean that shadow is getting longer and longer and longer well, and crucially, what it does is it, it makes sort of Rishi Sunak get smaller and smaller, doesn't it? And in answer to your previous question... That's good. Well, Long, how, what is Long this, Johnson, this, this short, short Sunak. Sunak. Because ultimately, you know, if enough of the Conservative Party has decided that they are going to lose the next general election and already starts litigating the blame and the aftermath and positioning for the succession, it just get, you get into a vicious circle where the incumbent prime minister cannot assert his authority. When you say, you know, what difference does this make? It's sort of not much actually to Boris Johnson, who, you know, either there are people who think he's immune from all criticism uh, and are still within the orbit of his charisma, or they understand the facts and think he should, he should never have been prime minister. The, 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 the more malleable thing is Rishi Sunak's actual capacity to run a government. And if enough people basically would rather talk about this than, than hold the kind of message discipline that you need for the Conservatives to have any chance of clawing back enough MPs to be competitive uh, into an election, then that's where the actual consequence of this lies. OK, let's go on to the other political figure who's surrounded at the moment by lots of talk about investigations and um, alleged wrongdoing. Rishi Sunak has decided not to investigate Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, over whether she broke the ministerial code. This is a question that's been rumbling on somewhat since it emerged that the accident-prone Home Secretary had tried to ask civil servants to arrange a private one-to-one speeding awareness course, one of those, after she was caught speeding. It later emerged that her advisor denied to the Daily Mirror that she had ever been caught speeding in the first place. She was caught, and she says she paid the fine and accepted the points. Gabby, what runs through this story, it seems to me, um, the Boris Johnson one and the Braverman one, is the pretty clear sense that Rishi Sunak wouldn't want to be accused of being on manoeuvres against two big names on the party right and sort of, you know, figureheads for the people who don't like him. And so he's sort of holding off. 
It's interesting that, that when the Zuela Braverman story first broke, there was a theory in some parts of the Conservative Party that maybe this was number 10 briefing against her. You know, she'd had a big run out the week before um, at the National Conservatism Conference uh, where she'd pretty much trampled all over the government line and maybe she was being, you know, maybe it was a kind of we've got dirt on you, stay in your box kind of exercise. I think that sort of, that thing has dissipated. But what you're left with is, yeah, the strong sense that, you know, that he can't afford to lose a Home Secretary right now and can't afford to lose a very right-wing Home Secretary who goes out and, you know, sells the line, um, the anti-immigration line incredibly hard, can't afford to lose one of those. But also I think there's a problem here with both her and with Boris Johnson, which is the last thing. Rishi Sunak's positioning himself as the clean guy who comes in and clears up all the mess. You know, it was chaos, but now, you know, boring Rishi is in charge and he's going to make all the problems go away. To have that sense that you know, lying to journalists when you're approached with a question about what you've been doing wrong, that was a thing that was supposed to have gone out with Boris Johnson. You know, Boris Johnson is a thing that was supposed to have gone out with Boris Johnson. And now all sort of <laughs> ghosts are rising from the grave. You know, it's kind of like the zombie past conservative governments all coming out and clutching Rishi Sunak by the ankles. You get the sense that this is very much the last thing that number 10 wanted at the moment. And yet again, it's a reminder of how sort of hedged in Sunak is really by the sort of inescapable past of the, the prime ministers who went before him. Yeah, I think I mean, that, that's a crucial point that in Rishi Sunak's proposition he presented to the public when he became prime minister was a sort of half repudiation of all the awful things that had come before, which bundled up this trust's mishandling of the economy and Boris Johnson's just sort of the moral reprobate, uh, uh, degenerate yeah, way yeah. in which Boris Johnson is government. And that involves, you say, sort of driving away the ghosts of that era. But Rishi Sunak is a ghost of that era. He was chancellor. And I just think... Uh, something has changed quite substantially since the local election results, where the sort of the data just shows actually how badly the Conservatives are. This idea that Rishi Sunak's managerial technocratic approach is somehow clawing things back—that that's fallen away. That was fashionable for about two weeks, for about two just weeks. before the local exactly. elections, wasn't and, it? And crucially, and in that context, you look at what Suella Bravman actually did, or we know that she did. It's, it's quite complicated, but crudely speaking. You know, and her defence is sort of would make sense if it described a conversation that took five minutes, which was essentially he's coming in and say, OK, so I've got this thing. I've got close. I've got close protection officers that might make it a bit awkward to do this course. Is there a way another way I can do it? No. OK, OK, I'll take the fine and the points that should have taken two minutes. The fact that it's all dragged on for days, as you say, suggests that Sunak doesn't really have the political judgment to close it down quickly. She couldn't handle this efficiently or make the call immediately. None of that would have been the story it has become if she was a competent Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah. He was a competent Prime Minister with judgment. Separately, a special advisor just saying to a journalist, no, that's not true, when it is true, is not only a breach of the Special Advisors Code, which looks exactly like the Civil Service Code on the question of being honest, but actually really becomes kind of as a culture of the way you operate with the media is very Johnsonian and toxic. Yeah, and this, the special advisor in question, we are told, denied four times that, that Braverman had been caught speeding and said it was nonsense. I mean, that's quite something, Gabby, isn't it? I think that's worse, actually. As Raf says, the conversation with her civil servants about how she was going to take a speeding course if she could get out of the speeding course and have a private one, you know, that is potentially something and nothing, depending on whether she was kind of threatening and, you know, make this work for me or whether she was just asking. But there's no defence, really. It's not like politicians regularly sort of volunteer, you know, their worst wrongdoings to journalists. But normally, if you catch someone with a straight question, you get a straight 
hands up answer. They might want to frame it in the most flattering light possible. They might want to minimize it as much as possible. But to say that black is not white and white is not black, you know, that is a huge step beyond the norm. And it's also, from the government's point of view, it's self-defeating because no denial is now believed. You can run whatever story you like. As often happens, the cover-up is worse than the crime, perhaps. Okay, let's look at the sort of big political picture here, if that's even possible, and zoom out a bit and talk about what all this says about Rishi Sunak and his government and the the state they're in. As you said a moment ago, Raf, for about a fortnight, the Labour Party's poll lead narrowed, didn't it? Um, and there was this idea that Rishi Sunak was fixing this or trying to and fixing that, uh, and the the ship had been steadied. I mean, look where we are now. They got a drubbing in the local elections. You've got the Braverman and Johnson stories. Um, it's now said that about 10% of all current Conservative MPs are going to stand down at the next election. That now includes Dominic Raab, the former Deputy Prime Minister. Um, there is a sense, isn't there? And I don't want to sort of tempt fate here that it's really slipping away for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, you certainly get the feeling that talking to MPs, uh, certainly some Conservative MPs who think they've lost uh, and you know the ones who think that they might hold on. The, what tends to happen there is you think, well, what can I do in my local area? How can I somehow sort of speak to my particular constituency and distinguish myself? And that might not necessarily mean being loyal to Rishi Sunak. It might mean the opposite. It might be how can I express, you know, become sort of more better known as a rebel. So all sorts of things happen. At the same time, actually, I was just having a conversation yesterday in the West Midlands, where there's a lot of seats that Labour want to get back that actually they're saying well we don't believe the polling and actually there's an awful lot of people you know bits of the red wall that feel still quite sticky in a very Brexity Tory way you know and obviously the you know, Labour terror of complacency is very strong in the party that mood music that says the you know, Rishi Sunak's his the one throw of the dice he really had was I'm just a sort of serious grown-up person who can make this work. And if his, if it's not working and you see the inflation is really sticky, the migration thing going hard on that hasn't really got a purchase, what's he got left? It's that bit in the film, Gabby, isn't it, where karma becomes inescapable, really? All the, all the past sins and skeletons in the, in the cupboard just suddenly tumble out en masse. Yeah, and I think it was always, I mean, it was always a sort of almost impossible task to get past those. The one thing that, that Sunak was sort of pinning his hopes on, I think, was sort of an economic turnaround. And if you could, you know, deliver some kind of economic upswing, then people would sort of forget all the all the rest of it. I mean, there was reasonably good news this week to some extent in, you know, sort of international forecast. It now looks as if Britain may not go into recession this year. whoop de do. I think we get growth of about 0.3% or something. But even with that, you know, the inflation figures are still, yeah, they're coming down, but they're still really high. That means interest rates are going to stay high. I think we really haven't seen the end of the political pain that causes when people come around to renewing their mortgages. And I was talking to someone the other day whose mortgage has gone, has is quadrupling when they come off their current deal. And you think, how does anyone, no one budgets for that. No one expects that to happen. No one doesn't punish government when that that happens to them. It's normally the phase that we, which, which we would say, oh, you know, government discipline is really breaking down. I actually can't remember when, when there was a disciplined Tory government. There's nothing left to break down, but you, you very much get the feeling of... <laughs> <laughs> when they were in coalition with the Lib Dems probably, is the answer that, was to that, probably that But, you know, you do get the sense... The of same it. people who now go around talking about coalitions of chaos. That was, that was the last time we had stable government, it seems to me. We will pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be looking at what we can expect from the new migration figures, another headache for Rishi Sunak, and what he and his government may or may not do about it.
Welcome back. Thursday morning, we'll see the latest figures on net migration released. And as we record this on Wednesday, it's already been heavily trailed that the target figure is likely to be hugely missed. There are reports of the figures reaching as much as 700,000. And now, as we all know, reducing net migration, for better or worse, has been a core Conservative manifesto promise for more than a decade. But um, things are looking pretty bad for them on that score. Now, earlier this week, Suella Braverman, her again, announced that uh, the Home Office was going to block the families of international students from coming here um, in a bid to help bring numbers down. Um, There is a certain irony here, a screaming irony here, to the spectacle of the very people who said they would stop immigration by leaving the EU, putting it up effectively. I mean, that's where we are, isn't it? Well, I suppose there is an argument you could make that this is Brexit working because the idea, the, the promise was that you take back control. Part of that is saying, well, you know, with free movement of labour from the EU, you can't necessarily, you don't, you don't have much control of numbers, whether the points-based system you do. And so we've shut down the European channel, as it were, but we're being you know, very liberal and generous and opening up the channel to everyone else. And you know, that numbers can go up as well as that. I remember them saying that in the referendum, Raf, Nigel Farage no, and Jacob actually, Rees-Mogg Patel and all them. did. That's the weird thing. That was the odd thing about it. That's the reason they settled on take back control, because there were a handful of Brexiters who said, you know, let's shut down the European side and let's, but we might, you know, be much more, we might want more skilled migrants from India, for example. Nobody said, did they, that immigration would reach unprecedented, that migration would reach unprecedented no, levels. That was always, there was always a coalition between, I think, 99% of people who voted leave with immigration in mind will have thought either literally seal the borders at Dover or immigration will be reduced or stop or control it. But that was never, there was always a group of Brexiters who made the other argument, which is why take back control became the slogan, not stop. But they never explained that to the public. That was never, you know, that's not what the public interpreted Brexit to mean. Exactly. The the, the, the posters that showed a big crowd of dark-skinned men thronging the frame of the image. That was Farage, breaking point. point. That was clearly not a a, a poster suggesting that what we need was a more liberal visa regime to get people to come and work in the health service. And this, this broader problem you have now is a section of the Conservative Party that has shifted further and further to into a kind of essentially an argument about kind of national autarky, where you know you had Suella Braverman at that NatCon conference last autarky, week. Autarky, for those who don't know such things, is where you is where a, a country effectively does everything economically for itself. Exactly, it should be completely sort of autonomous and self-sustaining. Autarky in, in, in the UK, including, for example, so if you can't, if there aren't enough people to pick fruit and and vegetables, uh, and that's a problem in terms of supplying your supermarkets, then the, the solution is that more. English people need to go out into the fields and do that work. And there, there are all sorts of economic fallacies that, that are built into that. But it, what it essentially it shows and you know, what you'll see, you know, as the row it gets bigger and bigger about the migration numbers is the Conservative Party grappling with the fundamental tension between the requirements you have young workers basically driving the economy you want economic growth that requires a certain level of migration. We don't have it. We need more of it. And that is a basic tension between what the Treasury thinks should happen yeah. and what the Brexit argument 
is, was predicated on and what, what Brexit voters thought was going to happen. I felt watching Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday when Keir Starmer went for Rishi Sunak over this, that I was watching an essentially dishonest conversation. It's a very, very familiar feeling in the sense that we all know that the reason that net migration is at the level that it is is because there is an economic and social need for, for these people. Right? If you want a halfway functioning economy, if you want a care sector that can even begin to look after the number of people it has to look after, you need people from overseas. And these figures are the proof. But neither the government or the opposition will say that, right? And so you end up with this strange spectacle of all this sound and fury, which seems to me sort of in denial of reality. It's more than that, in a sense. I mean, it is in denial of reality, but it's also in denial of what the policy actually has been. For the last, you know, five, six years, policy has been going in one direction and rhetoric's been going in another. And we don't know, you know, speaking on Wednesday, we don't know yet what the Thursday figures will be, but we know that for the most recent figures we have, it's non-EU migration that's up, obviously. And four in 10 of those non-EU migrants were students. Why are so many overseas students coming here? Because the last government deliberately encouraged that. It had a policy, first of all, you, you could bring your dependents, you could stay and work for two to three years after you graduated, which was hugely appealing. They, you know, Other countries that offered masters didn't offer that. There was a deliberate decision to attract foreign students because foreign students' fees are basically propping up the higher education system. Government policy has been going in one direction at the same time as government has been saying, oh, yeah, yeah, but we're really, really getting tough on migration because it daren't say what it's actually doing. It daren't say that the, the, the economy requires migration at a certain level. It daren't say that we have shortage occupations and at the same time you know it had made very public very welcome decisions you know to let in a number of ukrainian refugees to make an open offer to hong kongers you know escaping the sort of the chinese crackdown there and then it sort of wants to turn around and pretend that somehow this this has sneaked up on them and to conflate the issue of legal migration which is utterly under government's control. It's dictated by how many visas you're willing to issue with migration across the channel, which is a much, much smaller fraction of the total. But I think is what government has presented to to the public as somehow the face of immigration and the sort of, you know, the thing that we're trying to trying to control. It's creating a completely false impression of where the numbers actually come from. But it's an indication, Raph, isn't it, of broken politics in that sense and in another sense, which is that we all know that among people and places where immigration seems to be a big issue and a big source of sort of anger and anxiety, it's impossible to separate that from the awful state of public services and the fact that this country is in the midst of an awful housing crisis, right? And there is scarce everything. Because when there's scarce everything, you always get a conversation about insiders and outsiders, right? But again, that isn't really talked about. I mean, both main parties are in this sort of fiscal straitjacket, pretty much saying the country's going to stay much as it is on that score. And you get all this noise about immigration, which is a sort of, it's symptomatic of these of these bigger underlying problems. Well, there's something quite interesting also going on in this respect, which is that actually in the last few years, the, the polling shows public attitudes on immigration have as it were, sort of settled down. They've become more liberal. It's not nowhere near as salient an issue as it was in 2016, partly because the, you know, there hasn't been a, you know, a huge campaigning movements trying to make it salient, but also people care, uh, happen to, at the moment, care more about inflation, the cost of living, the NHS. But there's also a possible explanation, uh, which I've, I've come across, which is that actually geography matters a lot. One of the reasons that EU migration became especially toxic is because you had people, it was very geographically concentrated. So if you have the places like around, say, Peterborough, where you have you know, certain types of agriculture, 
suddenly, in people's experiences, an awful lot of people, you know, Romanian people or Lithuanian people in the town that had hardly any not that long before. And then you get this conversation of fear of like, are there going to be school places? How do you get... Yeah, yeah, but at the same time as money was being sucked out of of public services. Whereas now it seems that while the numbers are still high and going up, it's just being distributed differently. And a lot of people might be, if they're working in the health service, they might be in large towns. uh, They might be in places that are already quite diverse. And so actually... The, the sort of the the, char- the distributional character of the migration can change the way that the politics of it goes in ways that might be subtle, and or we might just have a backlash in a, a year's time. Let know. me ask you another thing, which is that given that this is about the state of the economy and and what the economy and the job market require, and there's not much it seems that ministers can do about it, right? Do you think it's a hell of a hostage to fortune on the Labour Party's part to be trying to kick up a stink about this? Because if they become the government or when they become the government, they're just going to be hit with all the same stuff, aren't they, Gabby? I thought it was a bold decision to go on immigration, <laughs> shall we say, to say the least. At, at Prime Minister's questions. You know, it's normally a subject that, that Labour dodges. I mean, they were trying, Keir Starmer was trying to make an argument. And, and, you know, I doubt that will feed through into headlines tomorrow. But he was trying to make an argument, I think, with that hostage of fortune in mind, is he was trying to make an argument about skills and about developing skills in the British population and that you can't, you know, sort of you at the moment you've got the kind of worst of all worlds where the government is is talking very tough about immigration, but failing to develop, you know, and train British people to do things. So, you know, if you don't the invest, birds, if that, you don't though, invest, because well, the spectacle is still really somebody saying, I can do a better job of this than you. And in that sense, he's setting himself up for a fall, isn't he? Not necessarily, I don't think. I mean, I think if I had a criticism to pick with that position, I would be that it's it's a nervous one. It's one that's afraid to take on the argument that actually some immigration is good for the country and what should we have a debate about what that that level is. Yeah, the credibility of that argument, though, suddenly disappears when when you're you're faced with what politicians probably ought to say by way of honesty, which is, you know, if you want your elderly relative looking after, if you want your Amazon parcels delivering, if you don't want fruit rotting in the fields, then you can't really get yourself in a terrible tiz about net migration figures. I'm afraid it is inevitable that there will be a level of immigration into this country for the foreseeable future and that that level is going to be too high for a certain segment of people and I'm afraid it's also inevitable that that segment of people the group of people who are who gets most pissed off basically by immigration more or less at any level especially when it's visible conspicuous either because it's sort of culturally concentrated or because it involves people who don't have white skin uh, that segment of people will be represented by a conservative party in opposition that feels excused from any obligation to speak responsibly about politics to the government and that is going to be awkward for Labour because they're just going to get attacked on this issue by, by sort of a grievance mining opposition and anything Labour does to try and address that and talk about and sound in quotes tough on immigration is then going to trigger a backlash on the left of the Labour Party and almost certainly I'm afraid I think Kirsten will find this very very hard in government. But what this all is, to go back to what we said about the idea of a government really in its death throes, that's exactly the sort of displacement activity. Lots and lots of noise and anger about stuff towards the end of the life of a government, which purposely are designed really to avoid the central issue, which, as Gabby said a moment ago, is poorly funded public services and a labour market full of exploitation and low pay and all those things that you never hear or very rarely hear. Talking of uh, politics based on emotion and all the rest of it, just to finish, Raf, it is worth pointing out that you have a book out. I do. About a great deal of what we've just been talking about. So this very emotional, sort of shrill, high-pitched politics that's very polarised and paranoid. And your book, essentially, is a description of, of what it's like as a political journalist to sort of operate in the midst of all that. But more to the point, what you've come to tell your reader is how you survive it. 
how you keep your head in the midst of it all. Well, yeah. So well, it's called Politics, A Survivor's Guide, <laughs> which is a, a, an indication you know, a, a, because of, you know, I reached a sort of a terrible impasse, uh, you know, in, as a journalist in, in reporting some of this stuff. But one of the, I try and diagnose ultimately the, the, the causes of that stress and the toxicity that, that made me you know, despair of politics. And you know, one of the key analytical things that I, I I hope I get to in the book is exactly this dynamic that Gabby was just talking about that we've been talking about, which is if you have as your central governing proposition something that is essentially populist in nature, you know, whether it's Brexit or anything else, which says there is a single will of the people. And so other Braverman does this all the time with relation to anything she wants to. Uh, and that I, as the politician, am, am sort of the channeling and the incarnation of the will of the people. You're destined to fail because it's not a realistic way to actually engage with complex problems. Inevitably, you then get into the business of blame-mongering and thinking, who is who is responsible for this going wrong? Well, it can't possibly be me, champion of the will of the people. It must therefore be the enemies of the people. And you get into finding scapegoats, whether it's foreigners, migrants, fifth columnists, traitors, saboteurs, the blob, the wokerati. And what we see, sadly, because, you know, I wish it weren't the case, is an acceleration of that process since I wrote that book, rather than it being diminished. On that note, we will end. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, as I always say. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics with the UK wherever you get your podcast. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about a limited time offer to try out a Guardian Weekly subscription. I've got one. Um, and get 12 issues for £12. That's of the print product. Um, you will find in-depth articles handpicked uh, from the Guardian's award-winning journalism written by the likes of us people you can definitely trust the offer ends on saturday the 10th of june 2023 you can subscribe at theguardian.com forward slash politics 12 the number 4 for 12 this episode was produced by frankie toby the music is by axel cacoutier and the executive producers are maz Etahaj and nicole jackson we'll be back next week this is the guardian Mit Asana behalten Sie unzählige Details an einem Ort im Blick. So können Sie und Ihr Team sich auf die wirklich wichtigen Aufgaben und Ziele konzentrieren. Jetzt kostenlos testen auf asana.com.